Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarati, chairman and co-founder of Fin, with you along with Chip Ponzi, co-founder and president. Happy to have you back. In this episode, we'll be talking kleptocracy, financial crime, and instability with John Prendergast and J.R. Maley from The Century. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White nights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the, on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been proven. Welcome to this episode of FinCast. We are honored to have John and JR with us. Uh, we've been wanting uh, JR and John with us, given the important work that the Century has done over the course of years. Frankly, the devotion and passion that John has demonstrated with his leadership on financial criminal activity, focusing on corruption and kleptocracy in Africa uh, for many years. For those of you who don't know their background, let me just quickly give you a snapshot of their bios, and then Chip and I can weigh in quickly and get the conversation going. First of all, John and JR, welcome. Before I get into your bios, I just want to say thank you for joining us. Thank yeah, you. Thanks too. for having us. For those of you, again, who don't know, you should know John. He's a, he's a legend in the space. He's a longtime human rights and anti-corruption activist, New York Times bestseller, uh, co-founder, along with George Clooney, watch watch yourselves, folks, uh, of the century. Um, he has been a dogged investigator, analyst, activist on dealing with war criminals, illicit activity, uh, and all of the networks attached to that uh, malicious uh, activity in Africa for a number of years. He also co-founded the Enough Project, which is a policy organization aimed at uh, countering genocide and crimes against humanity. A lot of John's work is focused on Sudan. Uh, John is, is also a, a living celebrity. Uh, not only has he done great work with George Clooney, but the board of directors of the century include Don Cheadle, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt. Uh, and so he, uh, he travels in great uh, and, uh, and uh, celebrity circles, which is fantastic. Uh, JR, uh, we know JR from uh, his extensive writing and work. He's the director of investigations for the century. Uh, he's been a longstanding researcher and analyst on Africa issues. He was at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, specialized on looking at natural resources, corruption, and security in Africa. He's written a number of reports. Uh, you can put that bio up for you. We will certainly link to the century's recent reports. Um, interestingly, importantly, JR has also done really good and important work on U.S.-China economic and security relationships, which matters even more today and certainly in the context of challenges and competition in Africa. So with that, gentlemen, welcome, Chip. Welcome to uh, this episode of FinCast. Great to be back. Thanks, Juan, and absolutely thrilled to have John and JR with us. And just before we get into this, uh, Listeners may be interested to know, Chip, you and I know Matt Damon from uh, from our days at Harvard. We actually lived uh, <laughs> in the same dorm with, with Matt. I saw him recently uh, in D.C., well, not so recent, when he was uh, filming a new movie, and I, I got to see him, so that was a real pleasure. Absolutely fabulous. Well, John, Jr., why don't we start, and let's start first with some of your more recent reports. You've done an expose on how gold has been smuggled out of South Sudan, how it's enriching warlords. Your prior work has looked at uh, the corruption attendant to the mining sector, uh, the, the networks of politically exposed persons who've hidden their money in places like Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia. I remember some of your groundbreaking work looking at some of the, uh, the networks that were operating throughout East and Central Africa and how they were hiding their proceeds. So talk to us a little bit about your recent work, and then I, I want to get into this with Chip as well, how your work has evolved over time and, and why you focus so much on these issues. 
Great. You want me to start, uh, Jr. And then uh, I'll sort of big picture it, and then you get into the details. Um, I think that what you know, what we concluded about this region, you know, this region of the world, East and Central Africa, not really a, a headliner. Usually, it's off the radar screen, off the mattering map, if you will. But it is the deadliest war zone in the world since World War II, by far. I mean, by a factor of two or three, uh, in terms of magnitude of deaths and 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 people displaced. And so we said, let's start here uh, uh, with the focus. And, and the common denominator in these crises, and in, by the way, not terribly dissimilar from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, is that you have the phenomenon of state capture, you know, where, where the government and its institutions have been hijacked by a small group, by a cabal of officials, usually military-related, and they and their international commercial collaborators are basically repurposing state institutions to loot. And you have this fabulous natural resource wealth in, in Africa that um, could be the engine of extraordinary development. And of course, instead is the engine of this mass extraction project where billions of dollars go flying out of the continent every year while billions of dollars come in in the form of you know, humanitarian assistance, peacekeeping operations, all the development stuff, capacity building, all this stuff, all this well-meaning effort by the international community to help Africa while the real potential engine of growth in the continent is being siphoned out by these, by these uh, small uh, mafias and their networks. And so going after those captured states is our objective going after what we call violent kleptocracies. It's not just kleptocracy, which is ruled by thieves, it's the use of extreme violence to maintain the system in place to allow for that uh, uh, looting to occur. And that's why you have these deadly wars and extreme uh, repression and, and, uh, and destruction of, of human life. And so we, you know, we've focused in, on a few of the worst cases, the deadliest wars, South Sudan, you mentioned, Sudan, Congo, uh, Central African Republic, and the and the surrounding region. And so your question about South Sudan, JR, why don't you pick up from there and talk about some of the more recent stuff that we have found? Sure, no problem. Um, so we've been looking uh, at the century for you know four or five years on illicit finance in South Sudan, looking at corruption and state captured there. Um, and you know we've centered on a few different areas. Um, First, as JP mentioned, the natural resource sector. So we've looked at oil and mining. Um, we've looked at the commercial activities and funding of uh, armed groups and security sector actors like the intelligence apparatus there and the military. Um, and then we've looked at, at government finances more broadly. So procurement, um, spending, um, and we th there are a few patterns that, that emerge throughout all of these um, projects that we pursued and reports that we've published. Uh, they're typically always involves a bank. Uh, the money is often in US dollars. Uh, it often moves through um, you know, corporate vehicles, uh, you know, incorporated entities, um, and it usually crosses borders. Um, so we found these typologies over a number of years. Um, and we've, we've you know, also identified that the corruption in South Sudan isn't uh, the exception. It's not a deviation from the system. It's the system itself. Um, so we've identified cases where the government is actually uh, extending contracts for military and security operations, and the companies receiving those contracts are owned by members of the president's family. Um, we've seen you know, the president's daughter, when she was 20 years old, partnered with a group of uh, investors from China and received a uh, mining concession uh, uh, west of the capital in South Sudan. And um, six weeks after that concession was awarded, a military campaign began. And we, you know, we can't necessarily say that they were correlated or that it was cause and effect, um, but it just, it shows just how uh, awful the conflict of interest is in, in, in that country. Um, in the oil sector, we've seen uh, major multinational corporations. So China National Petroleum Corporation, one of the biggest oil companies in the world, owns 41% of the biggest oil producer in South Sudan, Dar Petroleum. We found that company had been uh, providing material and financial support to uh, militias that were responsible for horrific attacks against civilians. They had been uh, paying for the lavish uh, living and security expenses uh, for 
a uh, minister of petroleum um, and that money that was supposed to go through DAR Petroleum to community development had been diverted to things like buying vehicles and, and um, sending the children of generals to on scholarships overseas. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've seen corruption essentially permeate every major lucrative transaction in the country. Um, and that's why we use the term kleptocracy more than corruption, because it's almost inescapable. This is the system in South Sudan. JR and John, I, I think that's fascinating. I, I think your description and your reports uh, illuminate exactly what you just described, which is this is part and parcel of a broader set of uh, schemes and systems uh, that these uh, ruling regimes are using to not only profit but to maintain control. And uh, John, I love I love your use of that terminology, violent hypocrisies, because I think it describes very neatly and brutally uh, the links between militancy, uh, human rights violations, and the corruption that goes along with this. Um, I want to bring in Chip here because um, something both of you said. Uh, resonates obviously given Chip's background and, and deep work on uh, looking at the system and systemic uh, vulnerabilities, including how we think about ownership and ownership schemes and, and how regimes like the ones you focused on in Africa have, have used the system to their benefit. So Chip, I, I just wanted, wanted you to weigh in on, on what you've seen uh, in, in this domain and certainly with, with John and JR's work at the Century. Juan, thanks so much. And, and John, JR, fantastic again to, to be with you uh, in this podcast. I want to start just by by thanking both of you, particularly for, for bringing to our, our listeners um, such a, a, a vivid reminder of, of why this matters. You know, our, our audience with uh, the Financial Integrity Network and the work that I have been involved in for, uh, for, for our careers in combating illicit finance often uh, becomes rather technical. And for those that are sitting in compliance roles and, and uh, risk management roles and in financial institutions or in vulnerable corporates, or even in jurisdictions where you're regulating, examining, supervising financial institutions to make sure they have the right sets of controls to assess and manage risk, whether you're an investigator or analyst at an FIU, um, it is, it's essential for everyone in this mission of combating illicit finance to be reminded of why we do this. And uh, the introductory comments that John J. all have is, it, th those comments are just, they're, they're so important in, in grounding everybody um, into the reality of, of the importance of, of the mission and, uh, and, and the, real, the real world impact of uh, what it is that we're all trying to do and understanding and addressing Violent um, kleptocracy, including how it's evident in the financial system. So I wanted to start with that. Um, Jr. In particular, your your explanation of getting into some of the details, and Juan, this gets to your question about how this works, is is essential because once once we we are reminded of the importance, um, the next set of questions is to how does this really happen, and how does it intersect with the worlds that, that we live in, um, whether in the U.S. or in other post-industrialized countries in a sophisticated financial system, how are we implicated into this? And um, understanding details about financial flows, financial institutions, corporate vehicles, um, cross-border uh, financial instruments, um, this is the world that we have to better understand in order to then do something about it. And I know we're going to get into recommendations later, but in, in my mind, the, the picture that you're describing is a familiar one. And it's one that, that we have from a global perspective inside of the, the financial crime compliance community, uh, constructed global standards and, and, a, and a sophisticated regime to help us understand um, risk in the financial system and to attack it. The challenge has been, among others, um, getting into the level of detail, the analysis that you all are providing in your reports and, and including initially here in the podcast about what types of financial institutions um, what types of corporate vehicles, um, which transactions, which relationships, so that those can be examined with greater scrutiny to parse out what is inevitably um, uh, layered illicit financial flows among what may be desperately important humanitarian developmental flows, so that we don't turn off um, financial relationships with parts of the world that desperately need them, but that we can better parse those relationships and transactions to siphon out 
um, where um, risk is really um, evident in the form of violent kleptocracy and where it's, it's, it, is, uh, it is actually um, uh, leads to uh, important developmental or humanitarian relationships that must be uh, not only kept alive, but, but frankly facilitated. So um, it's a long-winded response, but um, thanks again for being here and looking forward to talking about what we do about all this. And Chip, let me just echo real quickly what you said. You know, one of the one of the great things that the century has done under John and Jr.'s leadership is to come out with uh, repeated and consistent reports that have revealed the financial networks that have been used uh, to engage in illicit activity or to hide money, uh, basically to provide the sketches of what these kleptocracies actually look like and how they connect to the broader world. I mean, if you look at their graphics, I, I, you know, I would recommend anybody going to the website and looking at these reports. Uh, the, the, the networks that are established, the Al Cardinal Global Network uh, schematic, uh, Salvakir's Global Corporate Network that's uh, laid out in detail. Um, graphic after graphic that gives a clear sense as to how individuals are linked and frankly, how illicit finance is driving not just corruption, but the militancy, uh, the rape of natural resources, and the other illicit activities that the world is worried about. Um, so, John Jr., I commend you on that. But let's get let's get to uh, a bit more detail about what you've seen in recent years uh, that concerns you, uh, Jr. And your research, and, and John, what? Where are we headed? And part of this goes to whether or not we've got the tools to deal with these problems. You issued your report in October of last year, Beyond Carrots, Better Sticks, evaluating how sanctions have been used and, and whether or not they're effective in Africa. Uh, can you speak to what you're seeing in the environment and whether or not we've got the right tools and approach to deal with what is a systemic problem? Again, I'll, I'll give it a shot, and, and Jr. You fill in with much more uh, specific detail. But the in the big picture for us is that there is a cocktail of of policy tools when applied uh, 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 together make a, a bit a much bigger difference than the usual slapdash uh, efforts that we've seen, especially in Africa over the course of literally decades where you say where a government or the United Nations Security Council or the European Union or other bodies will say let's sanction this one individual and we'll we'll send them a message you know but that individual is not dealing financially in his own name he has a whole network of people that he's working through and um, it is almost meaningless so that so you, you have this uh, self-congratulation by uh, officials around the world when they take these kinds of actions and no impact whatsoever. In fact, maybe, maybe emboldening folks on the ground when they see, well, the tools they're using are having no impact. So we learned from some of the work you all did, Juan and Chip, uh, in, 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 on, on issues of a much higher national security uh, uh, importance with respect to, for example, uh, the, the the response to 9/11, you know, the 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 everyone knows about the war on terror. Most of the folks on on this listening to this podcast would know there was another component of the war, non-military, that was financial, building of this architecture of of anti-money laundering measures around the world, development of network sanctions instead of just individual sanctions. So we said, well, look. You're applying. We saw how they were being applied to countering nuclear proliferation to in Iran and North Korea. We saw they were being applied to these tools were being applied to countering terrorism. We said, why can't we use those for human rights, for, for promoting peace? And so we were able to, to uh, over two administrations, the previous administration, the Obama administration, and the current administration, the Trump administration, to engage with senior officials uh, and especially working level folks. And, and develop those kinds of strategies where you use a combination of AML measures with network sanctions, with asset forfeiture and visa sanctions and all the other kinds of approaches all at once. And you use them in the service of a larger foreign policy objective, not simply as a punitive measure or as a measure to say, Shh, let's send them a message, but to say, let's 
push these, let's leverage these people along to a peace deal. Let's leverage them forward to stopping the kind of horrific human rights abuses that they were routinely uh, committing. And I think we start to see real impacts now on the ground in Africa as a result of that, using these kinds of tools in a way and in developing alliances within uh, the, the successive administrations for people who will champion those kinds of, of tools. And that's so important to have those internal forces within the Treasury Department and the National Security Council, the State Department, USUN, and all these other entities, and within banks, because of one of our, we can talk about this later, one of our strategies is to work very, very closely with global banks and, and, and collectively figuring out ways to make a difference on things that frankly are not high on the mattering map in Washington and other capitals around the world. So you have to push the political will at the same time as you judiciously use these strategic tools that can actually make a very significant difference yeah. on the ground. JR, do you, do you want to comment on this? I, I think it's a fascinating point and the network uh, approach as well as the broader strategic uh, thinking that you all have applied to this has been really important and pointing out um, the linkages uh, for things that do matter uh, in in Washington, to John's point, uh, Africa may not always rated the highest issue on the agenda, but when people think about um, the many many issues that stem out of illicit activity and war crimes coming out of Africa, people start to to worry, and they start to look at your maps and supply chain networks that reach all the way back into the United States. Uh, that starts to matter. And can you speak to a bit of that and the approach you've taken? Sure. You know, the, the same pathways that allow for corrupt officials to uh, move their money, uh, move their ill-gotten gains overseas into property, also let terrorists and drug traffickers and so forth move money, as, as you all well know. And this is something we've actually seen on the ground. Um, in 2017, we published a report uh, on a bank in Congo that um, is owned by the members of the, the family of former President Kabila. Uh, he was president at the time. And this bank has been accused of moving money that's related to corruption before. Um, but we found documents showing that with the knowledge of senior officials at the bank, Hezbollah financiers who were under uh, sanctions were, were allowed to move money in U.S. dollars by the bank, even after it had been flagged by uh, compliance employees. So the, the, the types of corruption and, and the challenges that we um, are looking at primarily are connected to you know, pressing national security issues uh, eventually. And when, eventually the, the banks, if they're willing to turn a blind eye for government officials, the price is probably just a little bit different for, for terrorists or traffickers and so forth. Um, so, so our approach typically when we're looking into uh, this sort of financial crime or corruption um, is, is to try and be nimble and to calibrate our, our investigation and our, our collection methods um, to the thresholds and standards of those, those people and the institutions that have the power to use the tools that we're talking about. Um, so we want to be interoperable with banks, with, with law enforcement, um, and with regulators and, and financial intelligence units. We want to know what are the sanctions uh, designation criteria uh, for each of the countries where we're operating, and we keep, an, we keep our eyes peeled for that conduct. Um, we, you know, we have former uh, OFAC and Treasury folks on our team uh, who can help us evaluate what potential targets for sanctions designation would be really impactful and what are the, the criteria that should, should uh, guide us along the way. Um, so JP mentioned the, the countries we work on aren't high on the mattering map. We, we try and almost subsidize the efforts of the US government and other governments on the investigative front in some ways in order to bring the information that, that just isn't being collected because it's not a priority because we're not talking about Russia, North Korea, Iran, um, we're not talking about uh, ISIS. The, this isn't the the most important issue in the president's daily briefing every day. Um, so we try and fill some of the gap. Um, obviously, the, you know, there's a few dozen people that work on investigations at our organization. We're not going to fill the gap of the entire U.S. government. Um, so we're hoping that we can find very impactful, illustrative case studies and then also help encourage the system to expand and to be enhanced and augmented so that uh, you know, the, the Treasury Department has, you know, consistent capacity to look at 
um, illicit finance in a place like South Sudan. Yeah, and JR, your your work has done exactly that. It's it's shining the light on these various networks uh, that may not get as much attention, and certainly uh, spotlights in the marketplace, uh, and in particular for financial and commercial institutions that may be exposed uh, where they have this risk. And your reports are are consistent in the calls for uh, effective and targeted sanctions, investigations, uh, holding people and institutions to account. And so that's a huge element of, of the effect of your work. Um, I do wanna go back to, to what John was saying, what you, you just alluded to, which is um, your work with the financial institutions. And it's a lot of the work that Chip and I do now from a consulting standpoint. Um, I wanna hear a little bit from both of you and, and then also from Chip on um, what, what that interaction has been like with financial institutions. You put out a report in February of last year called Together on the Front Lines, How the Century Works with Banks to Stop the Flow of Dirty Money Funding Africa's Deadliest Conflicts. It's a great summary of that work. Could you, could you both give listeners uh, a, a sense of your work and the thinking, and then Chip, maybe from your perspective, uh, what you're seeing in terms of banks being willing to work with organizations like the Century on dealing with illicit finance and issues like this. I'll say one quick thing, and JR, I'd love for you to dive into the details, but on a big picture, I think this is one of those places where, and we can talk about it later, where having um, high profile uh, allies has been useful. Um, we, George uh, Clooney and I and JR have been able to meet with, uh, on a consistent basis, uh, uh, the leadership of many global banks uh, around the world. And um, in turn, our teams then work closely with compliance uh, staff and others in their, in illicit finance staff in uh, banks uh, in, in tracing and, and uh, responding to uh, illicit financial flows going through their own networks. And so uh, one of the things that George and I thought when we first started this is we thought, my gosh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, you know, stand outside in, of some of these banks and, and carry signs and, you know, get a megaphone out old school, you know, protests, you know, these banks are, are letting war criminals, uh, you know, use their institutions to to launder money. And then people like JR and others were saying, no, 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 you don't have to. We don't have to do that. They're going to want to work with us. So we said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And they were absolutely right. The banks, you know, give, if we can provide them solid evidence of how their own uh, partner, their own um, uh, networks, their own uh, system is being penetrated by these uh characters, you know, laundering the, the proceeds of their corruption uh, uh, and, and you know, buying uh, luxury properties with the, the, the money that should be used for schools and health facilities in their, in, back in Africa, buying these villas in, in Europe and around the world. So, you know, when, when we could show them evidence of that, they will take action. And so that's been a really exciting part of the agenda. It doesn't really get any publicity because you know, for Bank Secrecy Act, they don't advertise what they do. These people's accounts just get shut down. They're, they're, they're shut out of the international financial system. Again, we're using that model that you guys build up in the aftermath of the 9-11 and the uh, uh, efforts uh, through uh, against Al-Qaeda and eventually and later than Iran in trying to figure out ways to literally shut people out of the networks offending networks out of the international financial system as a strategy for leveraging them to uh, alter their behavior. I would just add to that, you know, for, first of all, I, um, uh, we have no problem with shining a light on uh, any banks that may be engaged wittingly in illicit you know, financial activity or money laundering, as, as I'm sure you all know better than us, not every compliance department at global banks is are created equal. Um, with that said, you know, South Sudan, Congo, these are small slices of the global portfolio of these banks. This isn't, you know, a bill. This isn't tens of billions of dollars of of money from Russian oligarchs going through a bank that could make or break its its profitability. 
so there's really no reason for banks not to to participate and play ball and and sort of help to to shed some of their more problematic clients and watch out for some of the more problematic transactions we're we're identifying. Uh, of course, it it's, would probably be a lot of money to to any of us and most of the listeners in this podcast. Um, but you know, a few million dollar transaction is is pennies to a major global bank. So um, you know, they really they really have a strong incentive to take action because if we, you know, the alternative is us shining a light on how they are complicit in some of the worst conflicts in the world. Um, you know, it, it, it's probably better to take action on the front end. Fantastic, and and Chip. You know, we do a lot of work with banks. Uh, we see it all the time. I think, to John's point, banks are receptive to getting information that exposes where they may have risk and and trying to deal with it before before they either get in trouble or before uh, the exposure is too broad. You want to speak to you know what you've seen, certainly when you were in government, but certainly now that you're dealing with banks and seeing on the inside how they react to reports like this and information and risk like this? Thank you, Juan, and and, and thanks uh, for for asking, because I know you could answer that as well as anyone with, with the experience that you've had over the years with some of the, the most complex and important financial institutions around the world. Um, uh, John and JR, again, fantastic insights. Um, I, would, I would just sort of track your comments as follows. First, um, with respect to confrontation versus partnership, um, the route that you're taking is, is, uh, is is exactly uh, tracking the conversation that, that's been happening over the past generation about um, the need to expand and strengthen and deepen uh, public-private sector NGO partnerships and collaboration. You know, at the end of the day, um, most people that are involved in the global economy and certainly the financial system is part of it. Um, they want to do the right thing, and if and if and if presented with a clear statement of the problem, a clear statement of um, their potential involvement. Um, will will do what they can to do to take the right action. I think that's the right premise, and I think we've we've learned that um, collectively as a as a uh, a public sector and private sector community. And that me and that moves into um, when that partnership identifies uh, risk that really needs to be addressed, um, making sure that those institutions that may be unwittingly involved um, not only can address a specific issue at hand, but understand how they were penetrated in the first place and strengthening everything from governance to policies, procedures, systems, controls, technical expertise as needed so that they can harden their defenses against that sort of activity that is um, unfortunately more pervasive than what any of us may find in a particular network. Three, that once we harden those defenses in, in the front lines of institutions that may be directly exposed, um, that risk and that illicit activity doesn't go away. It finds a new home and the weakest link. And then that, that of course, creates challenges of what we call intermediated risk uh, between the um, ultimate places where uh, these bad guys may want to operate, whether in London, New York, or elsewhere. And you mentioned dollar clearing. Obviously, that's going to involve a U.S. financial institution. But more and more, that risk is hitting those institutions, not directly, but indirectly, through correspondent relationships, whether they're formal or informal, uh, with banks and non-banks. And so then pushing, pushing that risk further out requires that partnership and collaboration to track that risk and continue those conversations and harden those defenses um, in other parts of the global financial system. And, and I think that's exactly where we are you know, at the moment, strengthening our defenses and institutions, working through intermediate risk, and then finally making sure that as the system is learning and hopefully becoming more resilient, that um, there is there is a, a, a attention towards not cutting off on uh, a limb when we could we could take a more targeted action, and and that gets to making sure that rather than seeing Africa as prohibitive risk, or even seeing DRC or or Sudan as prohibitive risk, saying no, there is acute risk within those places, but there is acute need as well. So let's make sure that as we as we harden our defenses, that we can take a calibrated approach. And and I think that's where we are really struggling as a global community. Uh, is it is it is this a, a, a problem set that ultimately um, financial institutions, um, uh, large multinationals will find worthwhile from a cost benefit perspective to parse through um, separating what is, is initially all high risk into what is urgent need on the one hand and what is uh, pervasive corruption on the other. And, and that just takes more resources than 
than what many in the commercial space may, may find worth their time. And, and I think we all have work to do on, on, on that front. If I might say something real quick, I think that's just a fantastic summary of, of what, what we are trying to do. And we were able to forge quite a productive uh, relationship with the uh, Undersecretary of the Treasury for Illicit Finance and Counterterrorism during the Trump first three years of the Trump administration, Seagal Mandelker, in working on uh, on Africa. She she took her fir- took a fir- first trip to Africa that somebody at her level had taken, I think, perhaps ever, maybe in in decades, and uh, asked me to come along and delivered these extraordinary messages to banks, to uh, government officials and others. And it's all along the lines of what Chip just outlined, uh, you know, that licit activity, uh, uh, legal activity, we want to support that banking activity. It's utterly essential, but we're going to provide uh, typologies for money laundering and other illicit activity uh, in the form of Treasury uh, advisories, FinCEN advisories, and we expect that you banks there in the region, which is obviously the the, the, the national banks and the regional banks are the big getaway cars for all this illicit activity. We're going to expect you to fulfill your duties in uh, due diligence and, and ensuring that the kind of activity that we spell out in our advisories is not going through your banks. And if you do, and if we find it, there are going to be repercussions. And no one had ever said anything to those guys like that at that level in Africa. I mean, I, I you did it. You guys did it globally re- related to counterterrorism, counterproliferation, you know, and, 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 and it had a tremendous impact. That's where we got the idea, and that's what we were pushing. And she did it, and it was extraordinary. And the impact, I think, is and so just to, just to underline what you said, there's such an important role for banks to play. You, you know, you can understand why a bank saying, "Oh well, we we can't really parse through all this stuff. Let's just get the heck out of here. The the benefits don't outweigh the costs here," and you know they redline the place, and then it's just a, a financial desert. And then you know what what happens? You're talking about financial implosion. And so, really, I think that the the, the objective we have is to then say okay, we'll come to you and give you very specific detail about who is actually abusing your uh, system so you can focus on those people and not just run away because it all seems kind of hazy and unclear. And I think we've had a fairly good triangular relationship between governments, uh, government regulators, uh, bank enforcement folks, and, uh, 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 and bank compliance folks, and and the sort of NGO sector that collects the evidence and provides it to them to so, so they can zero in on the real, on the bad activity and, and facilitate and support the good act. John, you, you and, and JR and the Century have been trailblazers, no doubt, in not just exposing uh, what we've been talking about, but also the model um, of cooperation. So really want to uh, support what you've done and also underscore what Chip said. And I think the you know, one interesting thing that we're seeing is the creativity around issues like human trafficking, wildlife trafficking, um, uh, you know, mining uh, related and extractive industry issues uh, where there's greater and greater collaboration between law enforcement regulators, private sector and NGOs. And frankly, the, the century has been an engine for a lot of that in Africa. So thank you. Uh, John, I, I would be remiss if I didn't come back to something you raised, which I think our listeners are, are going to be uh, angry with me about if we don't get to, is, is your relationship with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood, right? And not just your relationship with them, because I, I, I know firsthand that this is a close relationship you have with George Clooney and Don Cheadle and, and Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, as we mentioned, but they are substantively into the work. Um, and certainly with George Clooney, uh, Mr. Clooney has become the face of activism when it comes to Sudan and genocide and fighting the human rights abuses that have occurred over the years there. So this isn't just, these aren't just fly by night, um, you know, parachuting Hollywood stars. Uh, these are people who are passionate about the mission. Can you talk about, you don't have to get into your relationship with them, but can you talk to the audience about well, why are they involved and uh, how is it that you keep their interest given all the other things that they have on their 
agenda. Yeah, it's remarkable. Each one of them came to this uh, to this set of issues in different ways, and um, you know, it, it's all very idiosyncratic um, in in how they sort of arise. But all of it's largely is connects back to the genocide that unfolded in Darfur in the early 2000s, as we often used to say, the 21st century's first genocide. And all of them became activated uh, one way or another, or at least conscious of this and wanting to do something. It's hard to imagine now, really it is for me at least, you know, the idea that the world's imagination could be captivated by place in the middle of the Sahara Desert you know, and, and and tens of thousands of people would come out and rally and, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands would be writing letters to Congress and pushing them to take action about a place in, in the deserts in Sudan. But this is what it was like then. And 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 George especially, Don and I, uh, Cheadle and I took a couple of trips and wrote a couple of books about, about what to do. And he was very engaged in the, on the back of doing Hotel Rwanda. He had a vested interest in using his platform to really focus on that. But George came to it basically because his dad um, ran for Congress and lost and was really heartbroken. And he figured out how, what he could do to sort of help his dad back up his dad, an old newscaster from, from back in the day. And he said, dad, let's pick a place in the world to go and, and you'll be the newscaster and the cameras will come because we'll go together. And uh, his dad had sort of infamously once had a shot at doing Walter Cronkite's show and had a whole thing set up for it. And a minute or two before, there was news breaking about Elizabeth Taylor getting another divorce. And so they, they knocked him off and he never she got his little shot. You, you, you be the newsman and I'll be Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> so so they, they went off on this trip and you know, shortly thereafter, we got a chance to meet up. Uh, um, and and we went to New York and did a, a thing with the United Nations Security Council with Elie Wiesel. And George got more and more involved and interested in wanting to figure out how he could, he could make a difference. And and so we just kept, we started traveling together into these war zones. And the guy is just like completely, he has no fear whatsoever. So we went straight into the heart of like some fairly active military uh, activity uh, on a number of places in Darfur and the Nuba Mountains in Congo. We went to a number of different uh, locations. Wow. And, you know, he wanted to learn and he wanted to talk to people and listen to refugees and what happened to them. What, what were the stories behind? That just, you know, and, and these were not like, let me, let me show up in a camp that's really safe on the other side of the border of some war for, 30, for an hour or, or, or two hours with a camera talk to a few people and get the hell out of there. He, we went days and day, we stay in tents and in mud huts and out under the stars, you know, weeks at a time. And he really, really invested in that, just as Cheadle did too, and on separate trips. And so they really, they really are like in, in for life. Like these are really hard issues and you don't see progress for years. This isn't like, you know, collecting money for mosquito nets or, or, or for child and nutrition, which is all terribly important. This is the, you know, these are these are like complex emergencies where you're trying to rebuild political systems. You're trying to, you know, undermine, uh, disrupt captured states. It's crazy that 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 people would would invest decades of their lives in in trying to make a difference here, but they're doing it. And so, this latest iteration, I'll just close with this. You know, you know, for years we we thought, okay the best thing these guys can do is raise awareness, you know, bring attention to the issues uh, and, 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 and redirect the, the spotlight that's on them into the, into the issues. And, and, and sort of the, the basis of that, everyone's heard that the term name and shame, you know, the basis of that is all like, if we can just generate kind of uh, intense spotlight on some of these people and the, the terrible human rights atrocities they're committing, maybe we can make a difference. And we realized that these guys were beyond shame. That you know that the attention, if not connected to policy change, if not connected to real consequences for these for these horrific atrocities, would have no impact. And so we, that's when. And by the way, I'll have you know, the Bible of our pivot to this illicit financial activity is a book called Treasury's War. <laughs> 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 and so we. we 
Tell John I, I, swear. I, I read this on a trip. In fact, it was the first trip that I took my wife to Lake Como for. And, you know, so we, you know, she had all these visions of us going out every day and going on the boats and doing all this. And I'm sitting in my doggone room, you know, reading, rereading, because I'd read a page and go, wait a minute, this is brilliant. And, I, you know, just here's the history of what the U.S. was able to do when we actually cared enough about an issue to and, 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 and use the right policy tools and then marshal an international effort. This is how it works. This is how you can use U.S. power for good. So I'm here in George's house, like, you know, I'm, I'm reading this thing and I'm all lit up. So I'm getting him lit up. We, so eventually we, we sort of all shifts and we say, we, we aren't going to be able to do this. We got to hire people like JR. We got to find asset chasers of the world, the investigative journalists, the, 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 the financial forensic investigators, the folks that really know how to trace and trail this money. And then we'll take that information and they and we will take that information to government officials, to uh, the banks and anyone else who will listen in the media and anyone else who will listen and say, you know, here's where we can make a difference. Let's go after this. It's one thing to say, oh, these people are corrupt. Ah, they're taking all the resources of Africa. It's another to say, this guy's doing it. Here's his network. Here's the banks he's laundering the resources. Here's the real estate he's bought. Here are the shell companies' names and how they're using. Here are the kids and other uh, family members and friends and others he's using as cutouts to move the money. And now what are you going to do? So that's been our strategy. And George and Don and, and Matt and Brad have been really supportive of that and, 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 and helped evolve the plans. John, that's phenomenal. And their level of personal commitment, the way you described it, is just, is just remarkable. Um, and, and thank you for the nod to the book. You know, the big debate within Finn is who gets to play Chip Ponce. <laughs> Danny Glazer, too. We've got some debates there, but but Danny Danny keeps changing his look. So we've got to <laughs> the but, uh, but I, John, I, I kind of want to let JR maybe finish th this podcast off and, and uh, talk to us about what's next. You know, what's What's the focus next for the century? We're in a period of crisis, a health security crisis that's hitting the globe. It's obviously going to hit Africa in ways we haven't yet even seen. Um, you know, how how is the century? How are you all thinking about next steps for your work? And what's what's on deck? You know, that's exactly where we're thinking right now. You know, this this global pandemic um, is going to reveal some challenges and create some challenges. Um, so the pandemic itself is going to be a microscope for misrule in, in quite a few countries around the world. If you look at South Sudan, Congo, Sudan, Central African Republic, the countries we work on, the health systems there haven't just been neglected, they've been preyed upon. Um, you know, pharmaceutical goods are just missing from the shelves because money that was supposed to pay for them has been diverted. Um, hospitals have been looted. Conflict has left uh, the medical infrastructure dis destroyed. Um, so it, it's going to reveal the neglect of one of the most important uh, sets of social services that a government can provide. On the other hand, um, the, the disaster response efforts are going to create um, a smorgasbord for corrupt actors to try and seize uh, any capital injection into the country. Um, the uh, sharks that are going to be after contracts that, that are going to claim they can provide you know, ventilators and masks, et cetera, whatever's needed um, are, are going to really disrupt the, the ability to respond to this effectively. So that's where we're focusing our lens right now. Um, we're going to be looking really closely at uh, the, the pandemic response and the pandemic itself and examine how does that impact a, um, you know, peaceful transition in a place like Sudan or, or, or the peace agreement, the peace process in South Sudan. Um, we're going to look at at how the the patterns of, of state capture and kleptocracy are are going to undermine the ability for people who need care to get that care. And there's uh, a major a major pivot turning point here that I think uh, the the public health sector and the policy community more broadly needs to understand. Unless these kleptocrats, unless these uh, you know corrupt government officials, these authoritarian rulers believe there's going to be a consequence for 
uh, diverting public assets that are meant for some of the most vulnerable people in the world, all the money is going to be stolen and, and it's going to go into their pockets and it's going to move offshore. Um, and there, there needs to be a belief that these tools of financial pressure that we're talking about and all of the, uh, all, all of the, the capabilities of banks to you know, document the flow of funds and to keep really effective records of, of where money's going and, and uh, for institutions to be set up to scrutinize all of these transactions, unless these officials believe that they're not going to get away with it, then we're going to see more of the same because uh, Sudan, South Sudan, DRC, and Central African Republic have been in a state of perpetual crisis for decades. Um, so there it's going to be business as usual, uh, but just with with higher global stakes. So that that's what we're going to be working on, and we're going to be looking to see how some of the tools that the, the, the two of you have and, and others have pioneered can be deployed uh, to help mitigate some of the challenges associated with the crisis. That's fantastic, JR. And I think we're going to need your and John's leadership more than ever in the work of the century. I, I mean, just listening to you, uh, having reviewed your work and having admired it over the years, and, and I know Chip has worked very closely with John over the course of many years. Um, what I admire most is, you know, you've pierced the orthodoxy that these things don't matter, and they do, right? And you just described exactly why. And you've pierced the what I call the lazy cynicism around uh, not being able to know what this looks like. Um, and John, you described it perfectly and your reports uh, illustrate it vividly. Um, and you've you pierced the very notion that nothing can be done about this because something can be done about it, and you are. Um, and so I want to thank you for all of that. And, um, and I know on behalf of Chip and the folks at Finn and certainly our colleagues at the Treasury Department, uh, we admire everything you've done and really appreciate the time and efforts you've put into this, as well as to being with us on this FinCast. Chip, did you want to say anything just to close this uh, out? Juan, thanks so much. I'll keep it super short. Uh, I, I echo everything that, that, that you're saying and would only uh, remind our, our listeners that um, central to the success of the mission is, is getting uh, those outside the mission to understand that all the work the century is doing that John and JR are leading. Um, this is work that isn't it's not a cost center. It's a humanitarian imperative. It's a collective security imperative. And for those that are involved in this for, for commercial reasons, it, it is ultimately a commercial imperative when, when the world wakes up um, to the importance of what, what is happening and the reality that they can do something about it, as you've just said. So thanks, Tons, for having me. And, and how great to be back with, with you and JR and John. John, JR, thank you for being with thank us. You. And stay safe and healthy. And I want to just say as a closer that when JR and I grow up, we want to be Juan and Chip. <laughs> I think I think it's right exactly. back at you, John. I, we want to fly around with George Clooney and Brad Pitt too. Maybe maybe that's the next screenplay, guys. Yeah, there we go. Hey, John, give give Matt our best. Absolutely. All right? Thank you so much for having us. Wonderful. Well, listeners, that's the latest episode of FinCast. Thank you for joining us. Hope you learned a lot. Uh, I know Chip and I certainly did, and I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. We'll catch you next time on the next episode. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.